Welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee. And my name is Charles. And this is the podcast where we discuss the 1990s CBS television series, Northern Exposure. That's right. Today's episode is season three, episode two, Only You. You know, now that I think about it, I forgot that was the name of the episode, Only You. I'm not too sure why it's called that. I think maybe it's taking a note from the past episode and it's uh, referencing a song, maybe. Hmm. I'm pretty bad with songs. Do you know what it's referencing? So I can think of a number of songs that feature that those lyrics, Only You. But when you look it up on Google, at least for me, there's a song called Only You and You Alone by The Platters. Um, I listen to it. It's a nice song. I, I imagine that's probably what the, so- uh, the episode title is referencing. Um, again... I kind of feel like whenever Northern Exposure does this, uh, you know, if if it's taking, if it is in fact taking the title of this episode from another song, when this happens in Northern Exposure, it doesn't always really matter. Like the song isn't, at least for me, it doesn't feel like the song has a lot of bearing on the content of the episode. For instance, we we talked about this. What I Did for Love is, is another example. Yeah, it's pretty rare for it to actually influence what the episode is about. I, I think you're entirely right on that. Just on this one, it just seems really generic. Only you. We can talk about sort of like the overarching theme uh, or themes that this episode has, um, but let's just kind of breeze past it for a second. So this episode was written by Ellen Herman, is uh, how she's credited, and I believe she goes by the name Ellie Herman. She also wrote um, What I Did for Love, that episode. Mm, okay. Apparently she's the winner of the O. Henry Award for, for a short story back in the day, um, but not a whole lot of lo- writing credits that I could find online. Oh, okay. Has she written anything recently or was she more prominent in the 90s? Honestly, I can't say. I can't. I don't really have a lot of information on her. But uh, the director, Bill Delia, is also the director of the episode War and Peace. I believe it's the sixth episode of the second season. Ah, so we're getting the gang back together then. Bunch yeah. Bunch of uh, old veterans in Northern Exposure. Yeah, I like to see that too. Um, you know, I think we talked about it before how TV sort of has this kind of revolving cast of uh, people working on, you know, Beverly Hills 90210 and Doogie Howser and in Northern Exposure, they kind of like jump from TV series to TV series. But every once in a while, we get like sort of a recurring player. Yeah. I'm wondering if the more I watch Northern Exposure and like the deeper down into season four and five, if we're going to find episodes that were directed by cast members. Yeah, I believe I know for certain that Adam Arkin, who plays Adam, in this show, uh, has directed one episode of Northern Exposure that's going to be coming up. Oh, nice. I always think of it as the actors just growing bored because it happens a lot whenever television shows get to like their fifth, sixth, seventh season mm-hmm. that they let one of the main cast members just behind the directorial chair. And I always think it's really strange that they do that. I, I didn't know if they bargained for it or if they lost on uh, poker or something. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing if they get to direct the episode. I was reading an interview in the Northern Exposure book with Rob Morrow talking about how sometimes acting on a TV show, on a TV series, can get uh, boring, kind of like what you mentioned. I don't think Rob Morrow directed an episode of Northern Exposure, though he has gone on to direct um, a movie. Uh, Maybe he's directed some TV. But um, no, yeah, that's a good point. It's like every day you're doing a scene with the same actors. You know, The, the cast sometimes grows. Uh, There's always guest stars, but I can see how that might sort of um, get repetitive for an actor. Yeah. Do you think this is one of those television shows where they do like hundreds of takes, uh, like a drama show? Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily what drama shows do either, but um, Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that TV is made um, with a pretty short turnaround. So I don't think they have the time or the money. This, This show is shot on film. So I don't think they just have the resources or the time mm. to do that because um sometimes we'll see episodes shot maybe a couple weeks in advance you could see on the slate there's like you know this was shot in july of 1990 and then the episode the air date was like in august 1990 you know oh yeah that's a good point then i just remember hearing a story about the west wing where they do l- oh many many takes well yes that is that is sort of an outlier of a tv show because uh there are stories of shooting late late into the night like seeing the sunrise it's uh that you know, every episode was written by, what is it? The first two seasons, all the episodes are written by Aaron Sorkin. That's definitely an well, outlier. technically into the fourth. Really? <laughs> like, he wrote the lion's share of all the episodes. Mm-hmm. I heard a story, actually, just a little off tangent, that <laughs> in Parks and Recreation, they would do 
every single scene for sure from what I got told was that there was two takes. One was exactly how it was written down in the script. And the other one was called like a fun take. Quote yeah. unquote. Like you can literally say whatever you want and they would always <laughs> compare the takes on every single scene. So at least for the head television show, it worked that way. And I, I man, I, I, we got to get someone that's a, that was in the show. Northern Exposure. Oh, just to like yeah, say what it yeah, was like. We got to get some background on this. I am so curious what they did for Northern <laughs> I'm sure, Exposure. I'm sure it varied by director by director, you know, like depending on what kind of director it was, if they went over or shot more, shot less, you know, it's always different. Anyway, <laughs> Northern Exposure, episode two, season three. It kind of begins in media's res, right? Joel and Chris are um, sort of like going over their like desert island list of food, like what... What is like the one meal? It's just some, some random uh, set dressing or scene dressing conversation. They're just, they're kind of filling the space with their dialogue. What food would you like to eat if you were starving? Yeah, not a bad conversation to actually have, to be honest. I think that's kind of a very simple conversation <laughs> yeah. starter. It's like, what would you eat if you were stranded on a desert island? Joel says um, steak. He also mentions like when he's describing the steak, you know, he says like juicy uh, perfectly seasoned or something. And uh, he mentions red dye number five. Do you have any idea what that alludes to? Um, it's food coloring actually. Yeah. I don't, under, I don't understand why he's describing his perfect steak, his perfect meal <laughs> by the food coloring. I guess, I, I mean, he could just say like rare or bloody, you know? Yeah. I wonder why he said that. The- it's the censors. They, they didn't want any violent <laughs> imagery in the show. No, I don't know. Conversely, Chris's sort of desert island food is a big bowl of spaghetti, he says. But I'm curious, where do you fall? What is like, if you're starving, what is, what is your go-to? Uh, you mean like if I was on an island or if I'm just starving? I think the context of this conversation that Joel and Chris are having is, what is the perfect food when you're insatiably hungry? When you're like, insatiably like, hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely whatever is the closest fast food joint. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. For me, um, it, like probably like pizza or something. Uh, that seems I, I like, don't have the patience for that. Well, the, I'm that hungry. Oh, okay. Well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I see what you're saying, but cause delivery can take, a, can take a while. But mm-hmm. I mean, I like the, the factor that it's very handheld. Other than that, I think just like scarfing down like some, some like American Chinese fried rice. You know, oh yeah, that's a good one. I just rewatched um, Spirited Away and there's that scene where her parents are just like scarfing down all that delicious banquet of food. That scene actually scared me when I was a kid. When oh, I watched it's terrifying. Spirited Away. Yeah. Yeah. Cause her parents turn into <laughs> pigs in that scene, right? Yeah. Spoilers. But I mean, it's the, in the first like five minutes it's of the movie. It's in the first five minutes. Yeah. And it's meant to represent greed, but that always scared me mm-hmm. when I saw that. And it's very visceral when it happens when they transform into the pig people. It's creepy. Yeah. That. And well, I mean, this is all sort of circling around what we're talking about, this sort of insatiable desire, this hunger, and, and it kind of ties into what's going on in the sort of on the surface level in this scene while, while Joel and Chris are sort of doing their scene dressing of, of their dialogue. All these women, all different race, creed, color, all ages come up to Chris smiling and they're saying hello. And Joel is sort of starting to cue into this. Yeah, there's women all around from all ages, all walks of life, race, all walks of life, uh, are coming up to say hi to Chris. And I had guessed it from the beginning, but I bet I was like, it's probably some sort of pheromone that he's exuding. Like yeah. it's not because of like his clothing or anything like that. It turns out we find in this episode, and, and Joel begins to study Chris uh, because. He has some sort of supernatural power, um, which Joel can, I guess, can scientifically successfully label as pheromones, um, like acute, (laughs) acute power pheromones. Uh, So we learn that Chris goes through periods in his life. um, I can't remember when the last one occurred, but maybe it was when he was like a teenager or something. Uh, A period of days, like five to seven days when women are just uncontrollably attracted to him. Yeah, I thought that it actually would have been funnier, though, if throughout the entire series, Chris wasn't a conventionally attractive man and he still had these pheromones. 
Oh yeah. So if he was, if this, let's say if this, um, sort of pheromone power, uh, was gifted to someone like Ed or someone who wasn't traditionally like the handsome character in the show. Yeah. I was wondering how funny that would have been. So now I can't tell whether Chris had the pheromones or not whenever we saw in past episodes that he was with random women. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't think, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure, doesn't he say in this episode that the last time this happened was... I think he had said it happened once during puberty and then once like in his young adulthood. And he alludes to like orgies and uh, sort of he he learned everything in moderation fr- from. Yeah, I, you're right. So I, I guess it's just not a totally common occurrence for him, but enough th- that he knows about it. Mm-hmm. Something I want to bring up uh, in the first scene when Joel invites Chris to his office and he's trying to understand this phenomenon. Chris suggests that, again, any age, any woman will be attracted to him from his scent, his smell. Mm-hmm. And Joel sort of brings up the argument. So you're saying like my grandmother, uh, I believe he says Naomi Fleischman of Brooklyn Heights, you know, she's going to have lust after you. And I like what Chris says here. Wait a minute. You're telling me if my grandmother walked through this door, she would lust after you? Naomi Fleischman of Brooklyn Heights would lust after you. Well, Joel, it's not as simple as lust. I mean, you know, somebody like your gram... I don't know, it's hard to say not knowing her, but she'd probably experience something along the lines of an overwhelming need to pinch my cheeks, uh, knit me a sweater, whip you up a batch of humantashen. That's something she's inclined to do, yeah. So Chris clarifies that there's a lot of different uh, interpretations of this desire, um, this need to act on this desire. And I, I just wanted to do a quick correction here. I think Fleischman says he pronounces humantashen which is like a traditional uh, Jewish cookie for, for the holiday of Purim. Mm-hmm. Though I've always heard it pronounced hamantaschen. Me too. I thought it was yeah. hamantasch, like a nice piece of hamantasch. Hamantaschen, yeah. Again, I mean, there are certain, I guess, ethnic words that uh, Rob Morrow has mispronounced. I think, he, I believe in a past episode, he said jumbo instead of gumbo, <laughs> Cajun jumbo. Uh, though they do... How did, no one, how did no one on set correct him on that? Right. Well, I think they got it right this time because um, we learn in this episode that Maurice makes a good gumbo, or used to. He used to grow okra and cook gumbo. Do you remember that uh, scene? Yeah, I do. I actually, embarrassingly so, I didn't know what okra was <laughs> well into my teens. Like, I remember distinctly, like, raising my hand in geography class. Um, You're learning about said, like, okra? Cr- well, they said, like, they said, like, certain crops are growing in certain regions. And mm. they said in the South United States, they were growing okra. And I raised my hand like a naive 13-year-old. I was like, ah, excuse me, like, what's what's okra? And, like... Is this going to be on no- the test? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, every, everyone was in disbelief. Um, yeah, because you're tra- like, Charles, you're from... We grew up here. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get back on track. Um, we can actually pick up with Maurice and Holling, I guess, if we want to do a little bouncing around. Yeah, you want to go through the, each of the plot lines like that? Uh, sure. So with Maurice and Holling, um, sort of the first scene we get in this episode is Maurice is posing for a picture which Holling is going to take for him. It's a photograph that's going to be hung at the Houston Space Center, I believe. And, you know, we see them very friendly. Maurice is very thankful and very kind to Holling. And he appreciates Holling doing him this favor of taking the photograph. But the next time we see them, Maurice is incredibly upset uh, because he just doesn't like the way the photo came out. But that's, you know, camera doesn't lie, I guess. I find that to be a very common phenomenon, though, whenever you're getting your picture taken and then the product comes out and you're, yeah. you're just displeased with it. I read it's because our eyes are used to seeing us in mirrors. Mm-hmm. So we're used to how the mirror portrays us. But when it's a photograph... It's how other people would have seen us. Is that true? Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds a little silly because, okay, a mirror is just sort of the reversed image of yourself. Like it's not that different from what a photo would would be. But uh, if you actually look into it or if you think about it, a photo could be drastically different from a mirror, um, especially depending how close you are to the lens of the camera and how long the lens of the camera is. If it's a wider angle lens, uh, it could round out some of your proportions. You know, like they say, the camera adds 10 pounds. Whereas if you're looking at a mirror, you're looking through the lens of your eye, which I believe is usually equated to about 50 millimeters on a camera. So if you wanted to sort of replicate what you might see in a mirror, you, I guess you would take a portrait with a 50 millimeter lens. I'm not really a, f- a portrait photographer, so I don't know what they use. But traditionally, 
for instance, like when you're taking a selfie, mm-hmm. you don't want to have the camera too close to your face. That's why you see people extending their arm really far. If you, yeah. when you start bringing the lens too close, it starts to distort um, your face with because it's a wider angle lens. I think they're making cameras on your phone that take the selfies now. I don't think they're wide angle camera lenses anymore because I think those are too unflattering. Yeah, I'm sure they've uh, updated cameras not only to have more megapixels and to uh, accept more color and light, but also to uh, cater towards uh, selfie photography. That's a big draw. Yeah, how <laughs> incredibly narcissistic. <laughs> it's, the, it's the future. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, let's keep rolling through here. I like that this storyline sort of takes the direction of, well, here's something I don't like about this storyline is they're kind of reopening, uh, kind of rip, ripping uh. off the Band-Aid again of, you know, Maurice Holling Shelley, that whole yeah, feud. I wouldn't say I, it's necessarily a love triangle anymore, but it's still a feud. I know. How many times are we going to revisit this same plot device? And we're, what, we're in season three. And what's funny, I'm definitely skipping ahead, and I want to go back a little bit, but what's funny is the way this almost sort of starts to resolve this storyline, the sort of sort of a climax is Shelley brings both of them together in the chapel and kind of explains it to them. And then I believe Holling and Maurice just start like a yelling match at each other. Really, this feels like this scene feels like it should have been in episode one. You know, we, we start off in the pilot because they're in this situation. In fact, they've already sort of the pilot is sort of, the aftermath of what that conversation would have been. So we've already finished this, closed the book, and even seen sort of the denouement of, of this, <laughs> this type of um, storyline. And, and they just keep doing it again and again. Like we've seen this yeah, argument. I totally agree. And I forgot that in the pilot, they actually do rehash this plot device. <laughs> so you're totally right on that. I think that the only reason they did this, the only reason is because of the huge, huge theme of sight and vision. Yeah, and, and perspective. perceptions, perspective. That is the only sure. reason they brought back this plot device, which in that context is okay. Yeah. But I feel like you could have had another circumstance that it could have applied that theme, which is very, very broad. Yeah. It can be applied to most, if not all, situations, uh, a lack of perspective. So the way they're using this theme in this storyline... Uh, the way they're accommodating the theme here is sort of the narrative structure of an event that happened and you see that event unfold through each person's point of view. And again, exactly what you're saying, it doesn't have to be the moment that Holling and Shelley met. It could have been any moment that happened in this episode and they could have still done the same sort of narrative structure um, sort of idea. Um, I really like that sort of Rashomon, I believe... um, Joel equates it to the the story of the three blind men and the elephant in the room. Which is a nice, yeah, that's a very nice parable. And I'm always a big fan of that idea that what we see is a whole lot different to what other people see. Yes, I'm a giant fan of that. I'm just not a fan of it being used in this particular manner, which is uh, rehashing fighting this. over. Yeah. yeah, rehashing it and uh, having Shelly be an object, which to their credit, at least this time, Shelly argued against that and saying like, you know what? I'm more than just that. So yeah. I, props to them for going to there. Uh, it was actually really funny because when I was writing down my notes, I was like, are they really going down here? And it was yeah. like in all caps. And I was like, okay, never mind. She's, she's, she's talking back. This is, this is okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, since we do have it, let's talk about it for a second. These, um, retellings of the first time that Shelley and Holling met. Uh, they're, they're displayed in flashbacks, black and white, and I believe the first one is Holling's point of view. He sees Shelley and he's sort of swept away, and um, she asks him to open a bottle of aspirin for her. She's got a headache, and he does. And, you know, that's sort of their meet cute. Now, when Maurice tells the story, we get the, like, the same sort of black and white flashback, actually kind of shot in a very similar way. Uh, only a couple of details have changed, like Hauling's hair has been slicked back. Um, and this time, when Shelley is trying to open the aspirin bottle, it appears as if Maurice is about to help her, but Hauling uh, interjects and kind of rips the aspirin bottle out of her hand and opens it up for her. And finally, the story from Shelley's point of view her recounting is 
as soon as she enters the brick, Maurice goes off with Holling. They're kind of buddy-buddy chatting about stuff. And Dave appears in front of her and helps her <laughs> open the aspirin. So yeah, like you said, we can see that um, there's so many different uh, retellings of this story. And I, I, I like to think that Shelley's is probably the, the only accurate one. Yeah, definitely. Shelley's is going to be the one that's going to be true. You know, the truth lies somewhere in the middle between the two perspectives. Hmm. You know, they were showing it where Holling sees in one perspective, Maurice sees in a different perspective, and then Shelley, which is the object of lust, is able to see between the two men and come to compromise on that. Uh, now that you say it like that, though, I think you just succinctly described that plot line in under a minute. <laughs> like, wow, I just I realized that. On. <laughs> yeah, that's actually all there is to that plot line. Really? I mean, they've done it so many times. They got really good at it. They just, like, <laughs> boiled it down to its <laughs> essence. Um, in this episode, you know, they, they, we breeze through it. Um, I like that you said that the the truth is somewhere in between both of their stories. In that same scene in the chapel, when Shelley is talking to the two of them, she's standing in between Holling and Shelley, sort of like trying to be a mediator. And uh, it's sort of a visual representation of what you just said, sort of she's the middle ground and the truth lies in between both of them. Yeah, I would say that the Maurice Holling plotline is supplementary to the main plotline. And all of them have something in common that we already talked about earlier, which is vision. Yeah. Sight. Being able to see. Perceptions. Perspectives. Yeah. Um, have you ever read The Optimus Daughter by Eudora Welty? No, I haven't. You, you actually lent me a copy, so I need to crack it open. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's immediately what I thought of whenever I watched this episode, because... In that book, the entire theme of that book deals with visual symbolism. And Welty equates the ability to see with the ability to understand. So the people in that story who are able to see clearly, like actually see with their eyeballs, mm -hmm. they're able to interpret the situation the best and they have the best way of handling and being mature. And that's all I can think of throughout this entire episode because with this plot line and also the plot line involving Chris and Maggie and Joel, it's all dealing with sight and being able to see clearly. Yeah. Uh, that's all I could ever think about throughout this entire episode. That's just the symbolism that's raining on top. Yeah. Just to add on to, um, you brought up Eudora Welty. Uh, she also, you know, shares a, an award with the writer of this episode. Uh, Eudora Welty has won a few O'Henry awards. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. That's so kind of in the same class, you might We're say. We're in the same wheelhouse right yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also hammering on that theme while we're still on this plot line. Whenever Holling is taking the photographs and then Maurice gets incredibly mad at him because he thinks he's portraying him in a, in a negative light, mm -hmm. Holling goes and asks Joel if the photographs are good in his yeah. office. <laughs> so Holling is losing his sight, his eye for good photography. Yeah. So he's kind of not being able to see everything straight. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man. I totally forgot to mention this. It is in those flashback scenes, those black and white scenes where you saw from Holling and Maurice's perspective. Mm -hmm. I can't believe she's still wearing her teen pageantry sash. <laughs> that is just weird. If there's anything that's good from this plot line, uh, I think the music here, the score is very well done. It, it's uh, very peaceful, sort of westerny sounding. Um, I don't know if we've heard this bit of musical score yet in Northern Exposure, but it seems to come up in this plot line often. I like it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I didn't know if I was just being very mute to all the sounds, but this is the first time it's in the episode, right? Like in the series? Yeah, I think so. I think this is new. This is new. some new score. Hmm, okay. Yeah, let's keep an eye out or easy joke. Let's keep an ear out for it <laughs> later on in the future. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you were saying that, you know, we wrap this plot line up pretty quickly in less than a minute uh, by your watch. But I think another sort of sidelined um, plot in this episode, the one with Maggie, could be explained in even less time. It's a pretty minor part of the story. Maggie um, introduces a new character in this episode, the optometrist, uh, Irene Rondinette. I don't know if it's Rondinette or Rondinet. I thought it was Rhonda Ney, but I'm not too sure myself. Anyway, she's seeing the eye doctor who has come into Sicily. It's sort of a traveling eye doctor. She has sort of like a camper with uh, the graphic design Optomobile on the outside. And all the town go into the Optomobile to get their, you know, I guess annual eye check. And it turns out that Maggie, 
has farsightedness. Is farsighted? Is that what you would say? Well, here's what the doctor has to say. Well, it sounds to me like pressed by opia. Pressed by what? Opia for sight, pressed be for old. When you're young, the lens in your eyes got enough flexibility to change its curve based on what you see. But as you get older, that flexibility starts going. By the time you're middle-aged... Middle-aged? Middle-aged? You, you, you think I'm middle-aged? I don't... Do I look middle-aged? So much subtext dripping from that. Yeah, and... Really, I think this is sort of extremely one-note plot. I'm not saying it's bad, and I, and I actually like seeing Maggie in, in episodes. I think she does very well in this episode. But overall, this plot doesn't really move vertically or horizontally, really. It just kind of, like, stays put. It's lateral. It's yeah. Lateral, what is. <laughs> I guess, yeah, moves horizontally, perhaps, uh, only just in time. Because all it is is Maggie is struggling with the idea of getting older, and she's trying to keep that a secret, maybe, and finally, um, it only really has a quick uh, hop, you know, at the end of the episode when she admits to Joel that she needs glasses. She borrows his glasses uh, to, to test it out, and she admits to herself and to Joel that she needs glasses. But I like that Joel here defends her beauty. You know, he, I think she says something to the effect of that she, when she gets older, she's afraid of not looking beautiful anymore, and why should that matter? But... Joel defends her beauty and says, look, if it's sort of a backhanded compliment. He says, if men don't like you, it's only because of your abrasive personality. And she, she's like, oh, thanks. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I would say that I agree with you. It's a very small plot line that doesn't really change her character that much. Though I will say that when I was watching it initially and she was doing the eye exam with Irene, I was going to be incredibly mad at her character if she was going to hide this because she was afraid that that would affect her ability to fly a plane. Because that is oh, why yeah. she got yeah. Rick fired was ha. because Rick was colorblind. I was like, oh, you're such a hypocrite if you're going to go down this path. But it wasn't for that. It was totally for yeah. superficial reasons. You know, I totally forgot she was a pilot for a second. And then I'm sure um, our guest who has never watched this show before probably won't even know that she's a pilot. I don't think that's ever oh, mentioned that's in the episode. True. Well, we should mention now, I guess, that uh, part of our show is that we introduce Northern Exposure to someone who has never seen it before. You know, I guess, Charles, this is your first time watching this episode. Uh, I've seen the series plenty times, but we like to get sort of an outsider's perspective. You know, this episode's all about perspectives. Yeah. So at the end of the episode, um, I believe it's uh, your friend Nick. Is that right? Coming up? Yeah, it's my friend Nick. Uh, I've been childhood friends with him since... Geez, since I was born, maybe uh, we grew up in the same neighborhood. Gotcha. And yeah, he's. I don't know if he won't. Yeah, we can we can save it for the ending, I guess, because we still got one plot line left to get through. Yeah, the most important plot line, the primary. You know, it's the plot that we sort of touched on at the beginning, Chris's pheromones, and how that develops into a story. This episode is it turns out that well, let's say let's set it up. Chris goes to Irene, the eye doctor, to get his eye checkup. And he's sort of a bit cocky in this scene, uh, sort of warning her, telling her not to touch him. Like, don't worry about it. Like, this is normal. I know these feelings that you're getting, but let's just try to act like doctor and patient. Let's just be professional. But obviously, uh, Irene is not coming on to him in any way. Uh, and in fact, I was been trying to figure out like what, how to describe Irene's character. And sort of the only word I could settle on was placid. Like, she's not mean. Uh, she's not cocky herself. She's just pretty much just going through the motions. And that is sort of really what, um, I don't want to say irritates, but it's something that, I guess, disturbs or um, weakens Chris, his power. Yeah, I think that's actually a great word to describe her. Placid. Even the way she delivers her lines. And I don't know if it's just the actress being that talented to be able to read into her character and know yeah. that that should be how it should be delivered. Or if that's really how she just wanted to portray it. Mm -hmm. But she does it perfectly. We should say she's not like immensely beautiful, but she's attractive and she's perhaps probably, I don't know, would you say she looks older or younger than Chris? I would say that she looks older yeah. from what I was able to see. But still traditionally um, beautiful, you know? Yeah, conventionally attractive. So she's the only one that can see clearly. She has oh, yeah, yeah. clear sight. Once again, <laughs> beating down onto that <laughs> visual symbolism. Gotta yeah. get that metaphor in. She's you know, seemingly the most level-headed and that's kind of reflected in her, in her Demeanor character. and tone. Yeah. 
tone, yeah. demeanor, exactly. So she's the only one immune to Chris's pheromones from what we're able to see, and that bothers Chris to no end. Yeah, and he's really hung up on it. Yeah, even when there's like, geez, I would say, how many women do you think are at Chris Con? <laughs> Chris Khan, yeah, there's that scene uh, where Joel is, I guess, doing a house visit and he pulls up to Chris's trailer and the song I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones is playing on someone's like car stereo really loud and there's all these groupies, uh, women groupies outside of his trailer. Chris yeah, Khan. I would say like maybe like 30 women <laughs> just out in the woods. Yeah, I didn't really do a count. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, a bit of a wide shot whenever Joel pulls up. So, you know, it definitely feels like there's a lot of people there. Yeah, but Joel is there, I guess, to try to build a case history. Is that what he calls it? Um, sort of like a genealogical, trying to track down these traits that maybe run in his family. All the medical jargon aside, the ending of this scene is pretty funny. Chris is at first he's asking Joel to create a diversion so that he can run out of the trailer without being attacked by these lustful women. But he's, I, what does he say? He's like, I can make it to the tree line. I'll be safe or something. He just runs out of there. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was hilarious of a life. If I could just make it to there, I'll be safe. <laughs> I, I think that this plot line has a really poignant ending. I think it almost makes up for the hauling and Maurice plot line because mm-hmm. the, ending of this is that despite all of Chris's best efforts to woo Irene or to have her like him, it just falls flat. Yeah. And I really like that quote that Chris says. Actually, I think it's a form of narcissism. I mean, how can you love somebody you don't even know? Aren't you really just like projecting all the qualities that you want them to have because you're lacking in them yourself? Huh? Yeah, it's... That's great. And and Chris sort of brings up a very strong point, an interesting point. He, he says, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's love, actually. I think it's narcissism. So he's like, you know, what's the difference between love and narcissism? Sometimes, like, especially the feeling that he has of this crush, it's sort of like projecting exactly what he just said, projecting all those qualities that you want yourself um, onto yeah. someone. He can't see her as a full person. And I think that is the main thesis of the yeah. visual theme. He even says to her later, I think it's in their very last meeting, he says to Irene, he's like, you know, I never really thought of you as like a real person. It, it, it's a line that I wish they had focused on a little more, but I'm glad they included it because that's, you know, it's he's not trying to sound condescending or demeaning to her. He just He's just actually saying that, you know, I, it's my fault. I, I was projecting all these feelings on you. Yeah, he was just not seeing her clearly as a full human being. And it's, it's such a classic case of us putting people either as a on a pedestal or as trash, and there's nothing in between. Yeah. And it's such a well-documented feeling that I, I really do like that theme, though. Yeah. And actually, the ending of this episode, exactly what you're saying, it's this, it's this universal feeling. Chris's monologue, um, unfortunately, I can't play it because there's uh, Billie Holiday's Let's Dream in the Moonlight. There's a very famous mm-hmm. song in the background. But I'll read through it real fast. His, his sort of... Um, summation of what, what you're talking about, Charles. I know most of you have been where I am tonight, the crash site of unrequited love. You've asked yourself, how did I get here? What was it about her? Was it her smile, the way she crossed her legs, the turn of her ankle? What are these elusive and ephemeral things that ignite passion in the human heart? That's an age-old question. It's perfect food for thought on a bright midsummer's night. Hey, you said it best, Will. <laughs> He's quoting Will Shakespeare. Um, love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. And there you go. The, the, the metaphor of vision, which is not lost on Chris, you know, through this whole optometrist thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And hmm, I I never really thought about this till you just said it right now, but maybe what will as Chris calls him, Will, yeah. <laughs> is saying that the things that we find incredibly attractive in a crush is really just within our own mind. Like, no yeah. one else is going to like this particular thing that you love so much in this other individual. Like, the way that, I don't know, let me just make something up. Like, the way that their teeth stick out whenever they smile, or like the way their ears are shaped. Some strange, yeah, very small, minute detail so that it's like you a, love. It's a quality that can be um, ascertained through your eyes, but really what gives it 
its quality is in your mind. It's not necessarily the color of her lips, but it's just the fact that your eyes are communicating it to your brain. Your, your brain has some magic in it that creates love, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I always get a little bit mad at myself whenever I see somebody that has like, for some weird reason, just clicks all of the buttons that I'm looking for. <laughs> and it's like, why? Like, why, why is this happening? Like, this you know, is just because of this one little thing. That's yeah. the reason that I'm going to think I'm about this person. In love. Yeah. Yeah. This um, is so stupid. Hey, I think, I think that's great because uh, Holling mentions in, in one of his, um, when he, when he when he wants to level with Maurice, he says, "Man, if if I could have shot a bullet through my hand, and if that would have made me stop loving Shelley, I would have done it." You know, so it's kind of like this dilemma that you feel that you're describing. Okay, it's all like, right, why? you got me here. It's like, why can't I have no control of this? Way, um, way to make me like that plot line a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the writer is um, doing something smart. Even though he complained about how sort of one note some of these storylines are, they are really kind of wrapped together. And we said this before on the podcast, our favorite episodes are episodes in which everyone's doing something different, but it can all be wrapped together in a singular theme. Uh, Not even necessarily a singular uh, goal, but just they're doing completely different things, but there is a theme involved. Yeah, I'm usually a big fan of vision too, as a symbolic choice. (laughs) It's a metaphor. I'm a huge fan of it. I think I'm just being such a sour grouch is because (laughs) I've already seen the Maurice Halling plot line so many times. Overdone. And we've, we've asked for it to end a number of times. Uh, I can't promise you that this is the end, but you know, I think we're, I don't know. I, I won't. I'll knock on wood, I guess. So there are a couple of things I'd just like to pick up on. I think we skipped yeah. over just little fun tidbits now that we've reached the end here. At the end of the Hauling and Maurice plot line, Maurice enters the brick and sort of gets quiet because everyone's uh, unsure of what's going to happen. Is Maurice still angry? Uh, no, he sits down and orders the usual, which Hauling pours him a shot of Jim Beam, and they both yeah. share. They both share a drink. That sounds like a drink that he would have. Yeah, I think so. Uh, very Maurice, uh, very fitting to character. Another thing Maurice says in this episode is, um, I think it might be when he's talking to uh, Chris. He says, "Cherchez la femme." That's one thing the frogs got right, and that confused me for a second. But I think frogs is maybe a derogatory term for French people. I don't know yeah. what, what else he could be referencing. I think that's what it's referencing too. I, I had the same thoughts as you. I was like, frogs? Oh, I guess you mean the French. Which, ins- it doesn't sound that insensitive uh, when Here's you say frogs, but I, I had to think about it for a second. If someone had said, oh, that's what like the dogs would think, and they were using that in reference it's to like insensitive, Asian people eating dogs, then I would be very offended. Yeah, I think it's pretty insensitive. This, that's the thing about Maurice is like he always seems to have like a good idea, but in this very same sentence, he says something very off color. But anyway, the, the phrase Cherchez la femme translates to look for the woman, but it comes from sort of a cliche of like noir and pulp fiction, uh, the, the idea of a femme fatale. No matter what the problem is, it's often the root causes a woman. Yeah, it's sort of like the Helen of Troy situation, the face that launched a thousand ships. And it's funny, the Helen of Troy reference, uh, later with Joel and Maggie, when Joel is trying to defend Maggie's beauty, he um, compares her to the face that launched a thousand ships, like you said. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, that's where I got it from. <laughs> a neat little thing, if you look up Chesh La Femme on the Wikipedia page for it, Northern Exposure is actually one of the television shows listed as using that phrase. What? Are you kidding? No. Wow. Let me, wait, hang on, before I perjure myself. Yeah, the phrase is said by Maurice Minifield, Barry Corbin, in the Northern Exposure episode, Only You, while talking to Chris Stevens, John Corbett, actor. There you go. It's also mm-hmm. in the West Wing season five. CJ Craig makes the remark when talking about an old flame named Ben. I actually didn't know that because I have not seen a lot of season five. Of we we boycott. You're a boycott of, uh, <laughs> of that season, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But this isn't a West Wing Weekly. We don't have to get into it. All right. Um, hey, this is actually, I'm going to kind of go on a bit of a rant here. This is a really, really cool um, camera thing that mm-hmm. it might be hard to describe, but I encourage anyone listening to actually go back and watch this. I believe it's just before Maurice is talking with Chris. It's, it's one of their scenes and Chris is um, in k and we actually start on his sort of doodle pad and he's written out uh, just a list of variations on his and Irene's name. 
you know, tr- trying out their names together as if they were married. He has like Irene Rondonette Stevens, Chris Rondonette Stevens, Chris Rondonette Stevens Jr. You know, just obviously daydreaming about her. But what's awesome about this shot is it's the, the camera is, um, it, it's a really, it's really interesting edit. So the camera is looking really closely to the doodle pad. We're in close focus on it and everything else is out of focus and blurry. But as Chris is lowering the pad out of the frame, the camera begins to rack focus to the background, which is like it's shifting its focus to further away what what Chris is kind of looking at past the doodle pad. And for a few frames during this rack focus, everything is incredibly blurry because nothing has been brought to focus yet. We're shifting our focus. But when we finally land at the end, we bring into focus the background. uh, It's actually a completely different shot. These are two shots. So what Chris ends up looking at is the optometrist, uh, Optimobile in the background, and um, Maurice enters the shot. And we can tell, I think what's the giveaway for me is when Maurice enters the shot, the way he's photographed is you can kind of tell it's a telephoto um, style lens. Whereas the previous shot, the doodle pad close up is, it doesn't seem as telephoto, doesn't seem as tight, even though it's very close to the camera. And if you go back and watch that, um, that focus, uh, whenever he pulls down the doodle pad and before we start to see the Optimobile in focus, you can tell like as it's blurry, there's actually a change in color and a change in lighting because it's two different shots that they're maybe um, cross dissolving together or they're just simply blending with this very blurry rack focus. Again, it's something that you probably would never pick up on, but go back and watch it and it's a very cool effect that they've pulled off. That is so interesting. I yeah. did not catch that, though I do remember distinctly watching that scene and I rewatched it twice because I was trying to see what he uh, had doodled down in the right. little notebook of his. And yeah. I remember it was a little unusual from what my eyes could pick out, but I didn't realize that much effort went into it. Why do you think the director of this episode did that? Well, I, I, just quickly, I'll say, yeah, that's that's the reason why I actually it caught my eyes because I stopped to study the doodle pad because it's only up for a couple seconds. But what really gave it away was when Maurice enters the shot because Maurice is um, sort of, it, it feels like he's just as far away from the camera as the doodle pad was, but we see his, you know, his whole upper body. We, you know, whereas if he were photograph with the same lens as the doodle pad, it'd be like super close on his face, you know, (laughs) but, um, it's, that's the magic of the telephoto lens, but sorry to answer your question, why they did it that way. Um, I think they simply wanted to draw this, uh, this attention, the focus, the point of view from the pad to the automobile. Cause Chris is probably just like looking out from the, if you imagine Chris sitting in K-Bear, looking out the window, staring at the automobile all day, and just doodling on his pad. So he's like doing a lot of back and forth, looking at the pad, looking at the Optimobile, just daydreaming. And I think they wanted to capture that in, um, you know, they would have hoped to have captured it in a single shot, but I think they had to merge them together with that edit and that rack focus. So we're following it through Chris's eyes. The camera is literally doing that. Yeah, and we get the sense that a a doodle pad signifies just a lot of time spent uh, in your thoughts, right? So he spent a lot of time in this back and forth, like, you know, looking at the doodle pad, looking at the automobile. I I think that's a good visual language uh, that they've created with those two shots in the rack focus. Oh, man. So not only is the writing trying to be hammering home visual symbolism. So is the camera work. Exactly. Yeah. That is really neat though. I'd never pick that out. And just before we go to our, our guest, I wanted to bring up one, one last thing, maybe my favorite quote from this episode. Again, not a lot of Ed here, but he does take this amazing moment with Joel. I would play the sound by, I believe there's music behind it, but Joel says, uh, to Ed, can you believe this? Have you ever seen a man with this kind of incredible, irresistible magnetism to the opposite sex? He's talking about Chris. And uh, Ed says, uh, James Bond, obviously. Joel responds, that's the movies, Ed. Try reality. And uh, Ed just kind of looks at him and thinks about it. And he's like, nah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. The way he waited on the beat to yeah. deliver his lines. That's <laughs> fantastic <laughs> it seems like a very abed uh from community i was just about to say that yeah like an abed from community moment yeah so yeah i guess you know we talked about this last episode we haven't got a whole lot of ed yet i mean he's when he's on screen he's great and he's done well in the first two episodes of this season but um hopefully we'll see some more of him this season yeah i mean there's hmm, how many characters would you say is a northern exposure 
like main character wise. There's I think it's like eight if you're counting Ruthann. There might be more. Oh, Marilyn too. Oh yeah. But she's she's we ten, haven't had like a around ten or less. Her. Yeah. Yeah. But predominantly around seven or eight main characters. So but it's kind of hard to balance out plot lines that involved all seven cast members right there to have a very mm-hmm. strong uh, storyline. I mean, even in this one, Maggie didn't even have the strongest yeah. storyline. So yeah. I can understand within the first two episodes, there isn't one focused on Ed. Yeah, they'll, they'll get to him uh, for sure. Well, let's toss to our guest. Um, go ahead, give us a, a quick little history of uh, our guest, Nick. Yeah, so I was actually childhood friends with Nick. He grew up in the same neighborhood as me. So I've known him my entire life, I want to say, mm-hmm. right there. And really interesting is that I think that Nick's parents actually watched Northern Exposure. Okay, yeah. very. It was a popular show. <laughs> yeah, they were uh, original watchers of the television series. But he's definitely never heard of the television series at all when I had mm. pitched it to him. And uh, generally, I don't even think he watches television that much. So this will be <laughs> incredibly interesting to hear. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to go run to the bathroom. Let's see what Nick has to say. All right. Northern Exposure. So I was originally asked to watch this series, and uh, I don't have any background with it. I had never heard of it before, but oddly enough, my parents had. I know that it was a series that took place in the 90s. Um, I can only guess from the title that it takes place up north. I only say that because in the episode that I was sent to watch, there was lots of evergreens, and they made mention of the spruce trees. The character Joel... Uh, again, I, I don't, I don't know what he does, but he, he seems like a uh, doctor or a behavioral psychologist. His character seems very interested in the going ons of the people around him, and how they behave and uh, how they act. His friend Chris in the episode, it started with him attracting all the women that he walked past, which intrigued Roll and. Uh, they related it to his smell or his pheromones, and he acted like it was no big deal, and it happened sporadically uh, every so often for a couple of days. Now, Chris's character, I liked. He just seemed kind of a McCool. He just, uh, he was very grounded, never got worked up, just played it cool the whole time, every, every situation he got into. There were a lot of stories going on throughout the episode, but the main one seemed to be about Chris and Joel and a uh, quarrel between two best friends, Holling and Maurice. For some reason, fighting over a girl much younger than either of them, and the miscommunication going on between them, how they each saw the, the side differently, and the girl I don't, I ended up with none of them, which was a good call on her part. Overall, I, I really liked it. I might actually start the series from the beginning to give it a shot and see how I like it. But uh, yeah, overall, I think... Uh, Pretty good series. Yeah, so that was Nick's commentary on season three, episode two. And the thing that I find most interesting about this is not the analysis that it was giving, but now that we're three seasons deep into Northern Exposure, our guests seem like they don't know who the main character is. And I'm finding that very, very interesting. I would almost wager that he thinks Chris yeah. is the main character of this television series. And Chris is sort of the main character of this uh, episode, for sure, by far. Yeah, and I think that's speaking to the strength of Northern Exposure that has such a large ensemble cast, or like a decently large ensemble cast, that people, when we were dropping them off in the middle of nowhere on, mm-hmm. these, on these episodes, they have no idea who who is who or what's going on, though there's a common thread to all of them. And that common thread yeah. is that they find the relationship between Holling and Shelly to be very, very strange. Yeah, he he's like, this is a much younger girl. That's what uh, Nick was saying. I, also, it sounded like, from his perspective, it sounded like, through his eyes, the, the resolution of this episode was not that uh, Shelly resolved um, this feud between Holling and Maurice, but that Shelly um, ended up not going out with either Holling or Maurice, like she was her own solo woman, you know? Yeah, he's going to be greatly disappointed when I tell him (laughs) (laughs) what's up with that character. Well, if he he starts from the first episode, um, you know, 
as as he mentioned, uh, he might be more cued in, but then also maybe after he gets through this episode and continues to the next episode, he'll be a little disappointed to see that they're still together. <laughs> He's like, all right, I'm just waiting for season three, episode three. This will all be over by the time I get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that Nick is a really great litmus test of an average television watcher. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that in any pejorative or uh, derogatory sense. I mean that in someone that doesn't work in film yeah. or is associated with any of those entertainment mediums. or yeah. yeah, entertainment or anything like that. He, we just gave him a random episode to watch and the takeaways that he was able to get from this are what the average person would have gotten from this mm-hmm. right there. And I thought that his observations were on point whenever he was talking about Chris and the plot line between Holling and Maurice right there. So he's describing Chris. I like, you know, he admires Chris's uh, ability to stay grounded, level-headed. Does he say, um, does he describe Chris as McCool? Yeah, McCool. (laughs) (laughs) Like, is that a a, a McDonald's version of cool? I think McCool is like a Spuds McKenzie McCool. Okay, (laughs) just like an Irish cool? Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was great, yeah. (laughs) What's what's even more fascinating is that it's that's kind of like the one part of his review that was like a little strange, but it's snuck in there, you know? (laughs) It's very good. Yeah. So overall I think that I I don't know if I like this one as much as the season premiere episode, but it definitely Mm -hmm. wasn't a you know the worst Northern Exposure episode so far. I'd say um Overall, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's not strong in all of its um, capacities. But at a glance, there's some very great things uh, going on with, with sort of Chris's struggle with um, love and projection and narcissism and things like that. Yeah, I would say that this is the first episode, though, that really hammered home a theme, though, like that yeah. blatantly. The, the material here on the surface is, is a good TV show, but if we really start digging into it, it's really great writing, I think, tying it all together. Yeah, I agree. You said that she was a writer of What I Do for Love, right? Yes. What, what I Did for Love, I'm sorry, not mm-hmm. to. Which is also a good episode, I think. Yeah, I remember that one being up there for me. Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. There's no dream sequence in this episode. Wait, is there really not? Well, I no, I guess if you consider the, oh, flashbacks, the flashbacks between flashbacks. how... Okay. Yeah, okay. uh, Holling and Maurice. I was about to Shelley. I was about to suggest that we like redact this from the list of episodes because there's no dream <laughs> sequence. Yeah. yeah, this is Dream Sequence Watch 2019. We <laughs> got to keep watch of all of them. All right, well, Charles, um, that wraps up season three, episode two. We're going to move on to uh, next week, an episode called Oi Wilderness. Any speculation there? Um. I'm going to guess that it's a Joel-centric episode, if only because it's got oi. Like the Yiddish uh, (laughs) exclamation. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds something up his aisle. Yeah. All right, well, I'll catch you next week, Charles. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. The music featured in today's podcast was written by Kevin McLeod. And thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. Thank you, Nick, for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.